Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. As you guys know, we have been in the book of Romans. Uh, We are uh, in a series on Romans, but today we're going to take a little bit of a break. I want to address some of what we're seeing in our culture and um, some of the unrest that we've experienced Uh, Not only by watching the news, but uh, what we're seeing on social media. I was in Dallas earlier this week at the beginning of the week, and I got to Dallas, and there were like 7 p.m. curfews um, in parts of Dallas where where Lindsay and I used to live, um, 7 p.m. curfews going on. And um, I think one of our responsibilities as the church is, yes, to go to the scriptures and to seek to discern what God is saying to us, and to do that in, in a way where we're being faithful to the whole of Scripture. So that's one of the reasons why we uh, teach sermon series and teach kind of through whole books of the Bible. But we also have a responsibility, I think, to um, interpret what's going on in our culture and in the world around us through the lens of the gospel as well. And so that's what we're going to do today. First Samuel chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 22. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all, those, all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord... Who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The word of the Lord. In 2003, I was a college student, and at that point, I was also the young pastor of a very rural church full of white people, and I'd been leading this church for about a year. And once a month or so, we would have a deacons meeting on Wednesday nights. Our deacons were, as is the case in many churches, our deacons were kind of like the primary leadership team of the church. And it's not in any way an exaggeration to say that most of these guys were 40, 50, even 60 years older than me. I was about 20 at the time. So many of the guys on this team were were literally the age of my grandfather, who was in maybe his early 80s at the time. And at one particular deacon's meeting, we were doing some planning for upcoming events, and I don't remember exactly what was going on. Um, And and to be honest, I don't remember any other deacon's meetings that we had in my time there, but I remember this one, and I remember it vividly. We were planning, and for some reason it was brought up that the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday was coming up. And this created all kinds of discussion among the guys on this team as to who actually got that day off. Now, mind you, pretty much everybody in the room was retired. Like these weren't guys who were like going to work or taking vacation days or getting holidays or anything like that. And it created this big conversation, who actually takes that day off? And the general consensus was that's not that's not a day white people take off. Like that's not a holiday white people get, that's a holiday for black people. And then the chairman of our deacons, who probably one of the older men in the room and somebody who'd been very instrumental in bringing me to this church and welcoming me into this church, said something that I have never forgotten to this day because it was so shocking. He said, we just need to kill six more and get the whole week off. 
And I felt like the air leave the room. And I felt my chest like get tight and my brain exploded with all of this like, what do I do? Like, what do I say? How do I respond? And what was so amazing about that moment was as I was sitting there reeling from what had just been said, for everybody else in the room, it was as if nothing had happened. In fact, pretty much everybody in the room laughed at what was said, and then the meeting just progressed as if it was normal for somebody to say something just completely evil and then for life just to go on. And so I found myself sitting there 20 years old with all of these guys who were my grandfather's age thinking, what do I do? Like, how do I rebuke somebody that is decades older than me? At that point in my life, I'd never rebuked any adult in my life. And so while I would like to say that I stood up and I stopped the meeting and I like called this guy out or I pulled him aside afterwards and had like a pastoral conversation with him, the truth is I did nothing. I sat there in silence and let the moment pass. And, and to this day, this is one of the few moments in my life that I genuinely wish I could go back to and do differently knowing what I know now and having the experience that I have now. It's, it's one of those moments that I wish that I could go back and change things. Because what I realize about that moment is by, as the pastor of the church, by just sitting there and saying nothing, as far as everybody else was concerned, I had just affirmed what had gone on. Over the last week, two weeks on social media, I've seen a number of familiar quotes pop up. These are things I've heard before, but I've, I've found myself actually stopping to consider whether or not I actually believe that they were true. The, the first one comes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. Another one that's well-known is from Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor. He had been in the concentration camps, a Jew, became a famous author, Nobel Prize winner. I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Lutheran pastor who initially fled the Nazis in the late 1930s, only to feel deeply convicted by the fact that he had run away to go back to Germany and actively fight against Hitler's regime, says, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. All of these quotes deal with what I'm calling the complicity of silence. Complicity just simply means involvement. Um, if you drive the getaway car in a bank robbery, 
then you are like blatantly complicit. You are blatantly, obviously involved. But if you're driving down the street one day and you see masked men running into a bank with guns and don't call the police because you think, well, that's none of my business, I, I don't know what's going on, then, then you're actually silently complicit, meaning you had on some level some power to act, but instead of taking that opportunity, you did nothing, and so the crime continued unimpeded. And you know, it's remarkable how much of the Bible deals with the complicity of silence and inaction. Moments where people could have done something, not just in word, but also in deed. Moments where people could have said something and moments where people could have done something. We read one of those accounts this morning in the Old Testament, the story of Eli, who was a high priest in Israel, and his worthless sons, as Scripture calls them, his worthless sons, who were also priests, and their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Eli's sons were outright sinful in a variety of ways. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to cover it up. They were blatantly sinful. And what it says in 1 Samuel is they didn't know the Lord. Like, they just straight up, they did not know him. And so they are just lost in their sin. Um, they're, they're defiling the offerings that people are bringing to the tabernacle. It mentioned the fact that they're just sleeping with people in the tabernacle. I mean, just all kinds of sinful behavior going on. And Eli, who is elderly at this point in time, he hears about what's going on. And as we read, he calls his sons to him and, and basically says, hey, guys, don't do this stuff. But Eli wasn't just the high priest. He was actually one of the last in a long line of judges in Israel. They were basically the leaders or rulers in Israel before the kings came around. Eli could have done way more than just say, hey guys, don't do that kind of stuff. He could have defrocked them and deposed them. He could have had them put to death. But he ultimately does nothing. He just allows them to continue in their sin. And they all die and the line of Eli is cut off from the priesthood. As far as God was concerned, Eli had the power to act, but didn't. And as a result, he was complicit in the sin of his sons, meaning he was just as guilty. In the teaching of Jesus, we see the complicity of silence in two significant parables. The first is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a parable all about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. When Jesus is asked what it looks like to fulfill the great commandment, to be a good neighbor, his answer is that it looks like stopping and using your time and resources to care for the suffering. That's his example. As you know, the story revolves around a victim of a violent robbery who's left to die on the side of the road, and, and the first two men who pass by, a priest and a Levite, both of whom are religious men, they act like they don't even see the victim, even though they clearly see him, right? They see him, but they don't see him. They see him, but in their mind, in their heart, they make him invisible, and they just move on. And yet, these are the guys who, if anybody should have known the heart of God for the vulnerable and the suffering, it should have been them. And yet, there is complicity in their silence. It's, it's almost as if they had beat him up and left him by the side of the road by the fact that they are not helping. A theme in Jesus' teaching around this topic 
is that part of the way in which we are silently complicit is by making people invisible. We do these mental gymnastics to convince ourselves that we didn't see maybe what we thought we saw, or we didn't hear what we thought we heard, and and we use this to justify our inaction, and we use this to ease our spirit, because when we see something horrible, when we hear something horrible, when we see something troubling, when we hear something troubling, it creates unrest within our spirit, and we want to ease our spirit in some way. And so either we do that by trying to justify our actions, or we do that by actually responding to the thing that we see. But the reality is that when certain kinds of people are invisible to us, it makes it far easier for us to just walk by, right? When we've gotten to the point where we've become accustomed to not seeing certain things, then we can just pass on. Another significant story in Jesus' teaching is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is this juxtaposition between wealth and poverty and the way that wealth can make us oblivious to the suffering of the poor. The rich man in the story just kind of goes on with his life of luxury and comfort, feasting sumptuously, living in splendor, all while the poor and afflicted Lazarus is literally laying right outside his door. He could have changed Lazarus's life. It was within his power, but Lazarus was invisible to him. And in the end, the rich man dies and goes to hell. To use Jesus's language, we are all managers. Some translations use the word steward. We are all managers who have been entrusted with a portion of what belongs to the master. And the question is, are you going to be a faithful manager or are you going to be a wicked manager? Because those are really the only two options. In Luke 12, the faithful managers wisely use the resources that they've been given because they know the master is ultimately returning. They know at some point they're going to have to give an account for the way that they've used the resources that the master's given them. But the wicked managers use their resources to be abusive and addicted and self-serving. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 47, that the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. He then goes on to say, famously, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Friends, as I've watched the news and followed social media over the last couple of weeks, probably like many of you, I have been grieved by what I've seen on a number of different levels, from the horrific murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, a continuation of centuries-old injustice toward people of color, many other names that have been mentioned and many other names that are unknown, that have never been reported, that we don't even know about to the violent riots that we've seen around the country, to a president clearly seeking to co-opt our faith for political purposes and photo ops. Our world seems to be just in complete chaos when you look out at it. And, And yet, that can seem disorienting, but at the same time, if we believe the Word of God, we should not be in any way surprised that our world is chaotic, right? Of course it's in chaos. Our world is lost, 
Our world is lost. The reality, though, is what we're seeing right now is just kind of like the covers being thrown back on what is actually present and true all the time. We're just able to kind of tamp it down most of the time. We're able to kind of keep it under the surface most of the time. But there are moments throughout history where what is real, where what is true of our world kind of like erupts like a volcano from the surface where all of these things kind of come spewing out. It's not like a one-off event. It's what actually is. It's what's really real. We just kind of live in this delusion a lot of the time. We live under these false assumptions much of the time. As we've read in Romans in recent weeks, there are none who are righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And while it is easy and free and low risk for you to hop on social media and like speak out and tell everyone else that what they're doing is wrong or write open letters or attention white people or whatever the case may be, recognize that when King David and the Apostle Paul say that there are none who are righteous, that includes you and that includes me. It's not just other people. And so since everyone seems to be saying, what do we do? I, I want to suggest two things that I didn't come up with, but two things that I think the Word of God suggests to us. First of all, you have to begin with yourself. And I have to begin with myself. Before majoring on the sin of others, become an expert in your own wretchedness. Become an expert in your own wickedness. The call of Christ guys, begins with repentance. What he called people to as he went was what? Repent and believe. The act of baptism in and of itself is symbolic of the fact that we have turned from our sin, that we have died to our sin, and that we have been raised to new life in Christ. It has to begin with our repentance. And, and for some reason, some of us think that repentance was just a one-time thing. But no, no, no. Repentance is like this daily endeavor that we need to be wading into. And it is only once you have done battle with your own sin and your own demons that you would be in any kind of a position to address the sin of other people with any level of humility. Until you are supremely aware of your own sin. There's so many things in this world that you and I have no control over, but you do have some level of control over yourself. It's something we tell our kids all the time, right? You might not be able to control what other people do, but you can control how you respond. If, for example, you think that racism and bias and prejudice or whatever you want to call it are only things that other people struggle with, and that those things don't lurk in your own heart on some level as well, then I'm not sure you've really cracked into yourself just yet. I think I had a pretty normal experience of growing up white in the South, which means that I grew up hearing the N-word constantly. And in just normal, everyday conversation, as if there was nothing at all strange about it, from an early age, racist stereotypes were put into me. I went to an all-white private school that only existed because of desegregation. It was, quote-unquote, a better education than the public school system. One year at Halloween, at our school, a kid showed up wearing a Klan outfit. Kid you not. And he had it because his dad was actually in the Klan. 
And rather than like the school being outraged and him being suspended or expelled or whatever, it was literally like a, you got to go take that off. Right? That, that was my childhood. That's what I experienced. So the result of that for me today is that while I don't think I hate black people, the reality is if I see a black guy walking down our street, there is something within me that makes me go, wait a second. in a way that I never would if I just saw some random white guy, white woman walking down the street. That's not something I intentionally put into myself. But it's something that's there. Call it racism, call it bias, call it prejudice. But if I'm not willing to admit it and own it and put it to, get to death, then I am in no position to call out the sin of others. To call out the sin of others would only make me a hypocrite. And, and more than likely, I'm focusing on the sin of others to distract myself from the massive log sticking out of my own eye. It also makes me blind, that, that log, it also makes me blind to the tremendous privilege that I enjoy. Our, our daughters love to ride uh, over at the public school next to our house on, on the property over there. There's no traffic over there. They do it all the time. And, and yet... Lindsay and I both recognize that they are only able to do that because they're little white girls. If we, if we had black boys that were our children we were sending over there to ride, I have no doubt that neighbors would call the police. No doubt. So we have to begin with ourselves. And then secondly, we have to use the privilege and power that we have to act. When I look at this room, I see a group of people who culturally, financially, educationally, are those to whom much has been given. Irrefutable. And at the same time that we are addressing our, our own sin, we must also be asking, God, what have you called me to do with the abundance that you have given me? In what ways have you called me to be a wise and faithful manager of the resources that you've put at my disposal? There's nothing wrong with having resources, unless your resources are only for you. God, what have you called me to do with my power and privilege? And thankfully, the answer to that question is not obscured. It's not something that's hidden from us. And, and you don't even have to hear like a booming voice from heaven to understand it. We already know it. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you want to be someone who does the will of God, there it is. The issue with the silence and inaction in the face of sin is that it's an abandonment of the great commandment. Silence and inaction in the face of sin is an abandonment of the great commandment. The priest and the Levite who choose to turn a blind eye to the man dying on the side of the road, are abandoning the great commandment in order to do that. The rich man who turns a blind eye to the man dying outside of his house while he's enjoying all of his luxurious food inside and living his life of wealth and privilege and comfort is abandoning the great commandment in order to do what he is doing. Eli abandons the great commandment when he doesn't physically stop the abuse and oppression of his wicked sons. 
if you are unwilling to use your power and privilege to love your neighbors, then it is impossible for you to love God. In the words of the Apostle John, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. I need to wrap up. One final thought. I'm I'm very concerned that the way that most of us view the world today is being shaped far more by this than it is by the scriptures. If we were to get like a readout on each of us for the amount of time that we spend here rather than in the word of God or in prayer, the amount of time that we spend with the internets rather than the word of God or prayer, I think it would be deeply embarrassing to all of us. I think other people would look at it and go, wait, you're a Christian? I thought, I thought Christians were people who prayed and imbibed the Word of God and sought to become more like Jesus because they were disciples of His. Friends, we are called to be disciples of Jesus modeling our lives after the way of Christ, taking him in. This beautiful scene where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. The the night that we talk about every week when we take communion, the night that Jesus was arrested and when he celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples was also the night when he washed their feet. And what's most interesting about the whole foot washing scene is, is afterwards what he says. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand what I've done to you? And he said, I've given you an example to follow that you should do just as I have done. Now, he doesn't mean go wash everybody's feet. What he means is, do you see how I have stooped down to your feet, my creation? Do you see how I have humbled myself and, and, and like completely prostrated myself in service to you? To literally the creator of all things, the creator that we read about earlier, who spoke creation into existence, stoops before his creation and, and, cre- and cleans the, the muck and the like, dung and the grime off of their feet and then says, go and do likewise. And the thing is, for many of us, we want the Jesus who pours out his life for us on the cross and we want the Jesus who stoops down and washes our feet, but we're resistant to the Jesus who says, now go and do likewise. But yet, that's what it means to follow him. That is what it means to be his disciple. I want to leave you this morning with these words from Esau Macaulay, who's a theologian. He says, a holistic Christian discipleship addresses our personal morality. Yeah, of course it does, right? If we're going to be like Jesus, that means our behavior changes. And and the fruit that comes out of our lives isn't the fruit of sin, but is increasingly the fruit of righteousness. So Christian discipleship addresses our personal morality. 
it, it addresses our need for fidelity to the one true God, meaning that Christianity and discipleship is all about our faithfulness to God, right? Everything that we've read earlier about knowing his will and doing his will, like if, if we're not addressing that, then we aren't making disciples, pushing people to be faithful to God in how they live their life and what they're doing with their life. And then finally, the need for Christians as a part of our witness to the coming or the inbreaking of kingdom of God to push back upon systems of oppression. Now, my theology tells me that we are not, through our effort, going to remove sin from this world, right? We, through our effort, are not going to remove prejudice and racism from our world. That's not what God has actually tasked us with doing. What he has tasked us with is being filled with the Holy Spirit and taking the gospel into the places where we are for the purpose of making disciples, right? Not, not simply the purpose of doing social justice, but for the purpose of making disciples. But along the way, what do we say all the time? How are we as a church going about this? We're going about this by, yes, declaring the gospel of Jesus, but also demonstrating the gospel of Jesus, which means telling people about what Christ has done and what is to come for us, which means he's gone away to prepare a place for us, and so that one day he might come back and take us to be with him. And that is a place where there are no tears, right? There is no oppression. There is no injustice. So what that means for us as ambassadors of reconciliation in this world now is that we seek to provide glimpses or foretastes of the kingdom that is to come in the here and now. And if we are unwilling to do that, then we are not demonstrating the gospel. We're speaking the gospel but we're being proved to be just hypocrites if we are not at the same time seeking to show people or give people an example of what this kingdom that we have placed our hope and our trust in, what that's all about, the kingdom that we long for. When we say things like, come Lord Jesus, or come quickly, Lord make speed to save us, Lord make haste to help us, that's so that we can be fully with him. So it's not enough to just tell people that those things are true. Jesus did not just tell people that, things, that those things were true. What did he do? He gave people tastes of his inbreaking kingdom. When he healed, when he fed, when he drove out demons. What have we said before? In all of those things, he was saying, this does not exist in my Father's kingdom. This exists in this broken world of sin. And so as we go, guys, with wealth and privilege, position, whiteness, all of those things, may we go as disciples of Christ who are seeking to submit ourselves to Him fully and, and to submit our sin to Him fully so that through the power of His Spirit, He might sanctify us and like exorcise that sin from our lives. But may we do it so that we can fulfill His mission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do the same thing, to obey all that He has commanded us to do. If we say that we love Him, 
but we're not willing to do that. Right? If we say we want him to wash our feet, but we are not willing to wash the feet of others, then we are liars, John says. As we go from this place today, may we be filled with his spirit, encouraged by the hope of his gospel. And, and let's remember one other story of complicity. As the first Christian martyr was being killed, Stephen, it says the people who were stoning him left their cloaks at the foot of another man who wasn't actually stoning Stephen, but who was there and who was silently giving his approval. And his name was Paul. So if, if the Lord can change the heart of the silently complicit and the blatantly complicit, then he can certainly change my heart and your heart. And he can certainly fill us with his power to see others' lives change, others' hearts changed around us. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your beautiful gospel. And God, as we look out at our world, we see oppression, we see racism, we see unrest, and the reality is these are not new things. These are not things that are just in our time, God. They are things that have existed throughout the whole of human history. But what your word teaches us is that you have sent us as your body, as the church, you have sent us in this world to be a people who engage in your mission of reconciliation, pleading with people to be reconciled to you. That we would take the message of your gospel and the power of your Holy Spirit and go with boldness. That we would not shy away from addressing the things that we see in our midst. God, what have you given us power to confront? God, what have you given us resources to confront? Would you put a question mark in our hearts this morning? Am I using your resources for me and to increase my comfort and my luxury? Or, Father, am I using your resources for your glory and to accomplish your will? Father, help us to answer that question today. Give us insight and wisdom. Help us to listen to your Holy Spirit. Help us to know who we are and what you've called us to, Father. And forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of the ways that we have sought our own good rather than to bless your name. Forgive us for the ways that we have been silent. Forgive us for the ways, Father, that we have made certain people invisible so that we can be desensitized to their suffering and their needs. Give us, Lord. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus.